listening to the Lutheran Ladies Lounge podcast. I'm Sarah. I'm Erin. I'm Bree. And I'm Rachel. And today we are wrapping up another book in our book club, which is super exciting. And so this time we read All the Pretty Things by Edie Wadsworth. Fantastic book. If you haven't read it yet, uh, you should like stop listening and go read it or, or listen to it and then come back and listen to this because it's totally worth your time. So Rachel, what are we talking about? So as you mentioned, the book we discussed this time around was All the Pretty Things. It's a memoir, which was this is our first foray into memoirs. And I think we're going to have to come back around to this one, this genre eventually, because it gave us such rich uh, material for discussion. Mm -hmm. This is a memoir of a young woman growing up in Appalachia with a broken home, an alcoholic father, and a very dysfunctional family, and how she finds her way through childhood, finds her strength but also carries around wounds that, you know, just stay with her. Though she does, and praise God for this, she finds healing in her faith, and she does eventually end up in a Lutheran church, which was, of course, a total bonus for us in the discussion group, because that just <laughs> gives it such a personal connection to all of us. And yeah, it's a wonderful, warm, evocative story that gives you so much to think about about your own life and faith and the wounds that you carry around with you. Before we dive into the actual discussion questions that we've been considering more in depth with this book, I'm curious to know what your impressions were of it. How did you enjoy it? Um, what did you love about it? What kind of hurt about reading it? What do you think? I loved it. I'm not, well, I don't remember the last time I actually read it. A memoir if I ever have in my life, probably in grade school because I probably had to. But I love knowing people's stories. That is one of my favorite things to do is to learn about people and learn what makes them tick and learn about, you know, the things in their lives that that uh, have shaped them into the people that they are now. So I obviously need to be reading more memoirs because that's literally what that is. Reading her story was her life is so different from mine. And yet we've ended up both in the Lutheran faith and she's a sister in Christ, which is awesome. And yet our backgrounds are so different. It was really eye-opening to read her story and to feel what she was feeling and and just to know her journey. Um, it was kind of humbling as well. And there was a part at the end that I cried finally. I, I was like trying not to cry through the whole book. And it finally, it finally got me. Um, but I, I'll talk more about that later when we get to our questions. But it, it finally got me in the feels, which is which was great. Uh, I love when, when books and uh, media really, really make you feel. And this one did. So it was uh, two thumbs up, four <laughs> thumbs up, all of the thumbs ups. <laughs> I thought it was a tremendously sad story. Mm -hmm. I feel like ultimately it was it was an excellent story of redemption, I think, but like I don't know. And this is probably not a unique trait, but stories with that talk about like childhood neglect and like just brokenness, like in one of the first chapters when she talks about her first grade teacher and how much of a, a positive impact that just like food and community and stability were like things she had never felt before in her young life. And 
that was that was one scene that got me in the guts. The scene where she's in the maternity ward and she's she's swaddled this baby who was mm. born at 24 weeks and you know it, it was a terminated pregnancy. It was a, an aborted fetus that was still like trying to gasp its it for breath and to just know that she would run into that situation and just take that child and swaddle him and to make sure that he knew love in the last seconds of his life. Like I was at work when I was listening to that on a walk outside and like, just like, I'm just sobbing like uncontrollably. We had all these like landscapers at the, at the building this week. And they're just looking (laughs) at me like this crazy woman, just like sweating because it's 95 degrees. And I'm like crying and I'm just like a wet, mess but like (laughs) it's those kind of gut-wrenching realities that that she talks about that just they they punch you in the gut they really do I very much enjoyed it something um so all the things that you guys said I definitely I definitely appreciated as well one of the things that I found myself really I was really fascinated by her how she described her relationship with her father and that dynamic and how she didn't didn't shy away from the I don't know the harder parts of that the uglier parts of that but also did not I don't know did not hesitate to to make clear just how deeply she loved him and how much he loved her and that she knew that as well and so that uh, I really appreciated how she depicted that. Something that I did find, and this is my experience, uh, similar maybe to to Sarah, in that I don't usually read a lot of memoirs, and so I was sort of thinking about this afterwards. That I was like, where was the like? As you think about the story arc, <laughs> I was like, where was the climax? And part of me, I was like, well, maybe it was seemed like it was wanting to be the house fire, but then I felt like it had actually been earlier and it wasn't as clear in my opinion. And then I was like, but that's because memoirs are not fiction and the author does not. (laughs) (laughs) Life does not always follow a neat narrative arc. (laughs) It has yet to happen. It took me, it took me a little bit to sort of put my finger on why for, for me, I felt initially a little dissatisfaction with just how, this, I guess, the storyline of it proceeded. But once I reminded myself that it was real life, uh, I was like, okay, well, that actually, that, that doesn't bother me as much. But it took me a little bit to sort of identify what was throwing, throwing me off a little bit in my typical reading experience. Well, what's interesting is that... <laughs> I was kind of feeling that too. Like there were all these high points and high points and low points and low points and high points and really low points. But at the same time, like I follow her on social media too. So like I know some of her stories since the book has been written. So like the book has ended, but yet I still know all of this other information about her and how her life has has blossomed and you know her kids are beautiful and she does all this stuff on social media and it's great her story hasn't ended. It's still going. (laughs) Uh Yeah. 
Yeah, occasionally someone will publish a memoir that really masterfully does this story arc thing in a very satisfying way. And then occasionally the publisher will have to issue a retraction because they made a lot of stuff up to make it fit right. You know, it's like life is wow. not tidy. Uh -huh. Not uh -huh. how this works. <laughs> I do want to mention just for my part, one of the things that I really, really appreciated about this book, and it came up in one of the early discussion questions. I loved the fact that it reminded me that people who look successful on the outside don't always have it put together on the inside. You know, I would never, if I had met Edie, the, the subject or the, the, the author of this book, you know, as a teenager or as a young adult or as a, you know, young mother, I would have never guessed the wounds that she carried around inside. Because here's this woman who's both a straight A student and a varsity athlete and a homecoming queen and a medical student. I mean, she seems to have it all together. And yet on the inside, she's just, her heart is like a dumpster fire because of everything she's been through. And only, you know, coming to grips with that and learning the grace of God can fix that. And so it's a reminder to me to look at people and just pretty much assume that there's more to them than I can see and to treat them with the appropriate compassion that goes with that understanding. And this book just brought that home for me. So I'm really grateful for that lesson that hopefully I'll take with me into the world. I think one of the, the major turning points for her was her spending her time with Dr. Stedman in therapy and just like yeah. mm -hmm. giving him the opportunity to just listen so that she could take time to unpack all of these feelings and thoughts and, and memories that I think had, had held her down for so long in terms of like how she felt about herself and in her relationships and, you know, the sorrow that she was feeling. I think that that was a huge, at least for her mental health and how, that sort of fueled her life moving forward. I think that was a huge, huge turning point. And I'm so glad that she included that particular detail in the memoir, because mm -hmm. um, speaking from personal experience, you know, therapy and psychiatry and psychology, like I will, I will sing the praises of those medical practices until my dying day um, that even the most successful of us, need that kind of help on a routine basis. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's that's another great thing about this book is that it really balances, you know, this uh, these understandings of what it takes to heal. That if there's a sort of triple takeaway from this, it's if you're carrying around a backpack full of trauma, go to church, go to therapy, love your people. I mean, that that's sort of what I, what I took away from that. And it's solid, solid wisdom. All right, let's dig into some questions here. As usual, I ask each of you to pick one question that you'd like to sort of zero in on for the meaty part of our discussion. So who wants to go first? What are we talking about today? I picked question number three. And just to refresh everyone's memory of that, it was that one thing this book really brought home was the many different kinds of poverty that exist in the world. The Ryder clan suffers from more than just economic poverty. There's also educational, physical, spiritual, political poverty, and a really complex 
sort of mishmash that goes back generations. But they're all they're also rich in a lot of ways because uh, they've got the strong family ties and the colorful culture that they were part of. So what different kinds of poverty and wealth do you see in the book and in your own life? Who's rich? Who's poor? In what ways? How do we measure? And that got me thinking about uh, wrestling with poverty is something that I actually, uh, maybe not wrestling with, but considering and how we engage with it is something that I spend some time thinking about in my work in the Office of International Mission. A lot of the work that we do around the world are in places that do experience poverty on some levels. And it's something that we really, what we do struggle with is how do we how do we equip and educate the people that are going to be coming from the U.S. to serve in those places to to see and engage with it in a way that's actually helpful? Something that this brought up on that we see in the book is that poverty isn't necessarily just about a lack of material resources, but often when we're thinking about the definition of poverty, However we're defining it is then how we choose to try and alleviate it. So if you think about poverty as a lack of material things, then the way you try and fix it by applying material things to the problem, right? And so what we find in a lot of the world, and, and I, it's true in the U.S. as well in places that, that do have some extreme poverty, is that there is this the lack of material resources is an element of it, but there's also this psychological and relational aspect. And so often when you talk with people who are who are poor, how they would describe their poverty is more along the lines of they lack dignity, they feel inferior, they feel like they don't have a voice, their voice is not heard. And so I think we can see some of that in the book in as she started engaging with different people and um, realized that she could do this and somebody, you know, the coaches that would listen to her and encourage her and, and that started to give her that voice that was heard. And so that just really, I don't know, that just struck me. There's this book that we often encourage people of, of, as a resource when they're going to be working internationally in poor communities called When Helping Hurts, uh, which mm. is a really interesting approach to, to discussing poverty and how to engage with it. And I think there's some application here for the U.S. as well. In the Facebook group, in the, in the book club discussion, some people talked about how they, they currently were experiencing poverty. One person uh, commented that she's feeling a poverty of people as she, you know, as she's moved away from people, as people mm. in her life have died. And so she's she's without those relationships that she loved. And that was something that you could see throughout Edie's story that she did have her people close. I mean, some of them died, but she had a very, very rich social network of, of family ties that were all right there close to where she was. I mean, when they had the house fire, her sister was like, stay put, I'll be there soon. She picked up her mom and they were there that same, you know, while the fire was still going on, there's her sister and mom arriving on the scene because they were that close, physically close even. Another person in the book club commented how when she was growing up, 
she didn't realize that that they were poor because they had again they had the the network they had you know they had enough they had to grow their food they didn't buy it but they had what they needed even though by traditional you know modern standards we would look at that and say that person is living in poverty i know that you know when i was growing up there was a time um particularly during the years that my dad went to seminary that we lived below the poverty line in our family but we had again we had the strong family ties so we we moved in with an aunt and uncle and lived with them and then later we moved in with a guy at a congregation that we went to who had a big house and said you can live with us this we can live with me this year he was a single guy and he's like sure this family of five you know with three with three kids <laughs> live in my house and we did it was great carl was a was a blessing we we got free meals at school because we qualified for it and at the same time, you know, we bought all our clothes from the seminary resell it shop or else received them as Christmas gifts, you know, from an aunt, things like that. But it it wasn't something that I was aware of, again, because I think because of the network. So I think that was yeah. interesting. And it makes me think, again, about people when they are engaging with poverty, especially sort of for the first time when they go into it without the background and context of the community, you can miss some of those other things that are there and only focus on the visible elements of houses that are broken down. And, you know, you see, you see bars on all the windows in a neighborhood, or you see people, you know, if you're in another country, you see people wearing clothes that clearly do not fit them and are, you know, falling apart at the seams. But if you look at it another time, you know, another, at a, in another co context, you might actually see, well, that, that clothing is clearly worn, but actually it does fit them well. And they, it's, it's clean. There's just an interesting thing. I think too often we can look at it at first glance and sort of jump to assumptions. And as you commented, the it's really a complex thing. Right. Poverty is just a complex beast. It's not it, re it really is. Do you have the resources and not just wealth and money? And those aren't only aren't all the resources that go into a, a rich life. You know, we in the book, it mentions several times how Edie and her sister were hungry a lot of the time because they're they spent, you know, weekends at their grandmother's house and there was very little food there. What seems to sting more, I mean, on the surface, you would look at a situation like that, think, well, that's easy. I've got food here. Have some food, you know, and that seems to be our instinct. Let's throw some money at it. Let's throw some mm -hmm. stuff, some food at it. Mm -hmm. But what really seemed to sting in that situation was partly that there was not enough food for them, but partly because they were surrounded by adults who didn't seem to look at that situation and be motivated to take responsibility for the young people who were dependent upon them, that that was what hurt as much as the actual hunger pangs did. Mm -hmm. That time and again, the adults would look at the situation, hungry girls haven't been fed. There's no food really in the pantry and not do anything about it. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And that's a different kind of problem right. than, you know, just simply a lack of food. Yeah. So yeah, the, the complex problem of poverty 
um, and the how to actually resolve it begins with understanding its complexity and realizing that you can be rich in some ways and poor in other ways, and they may not match up. And everybody probably, you know, has certain areas in which they are rich and in which they're poor. Mm -hmm. And it it helps us, helps us help one another to acknowledge that. Mm -hmm. The question that I chose to take is very much in line with that, that answer. So I picked question number five, where, We talk about Christian hospitality and food and faith. And so in that question, we gave three examples. We gave the example of Edie staying with her friend, Nicole, and sort of romanticizing her family. She talks about living with her stepmom and her interactions with Susan, who we learn is is a friend in her adult life who always has a plate of chocolate chip cookies on the counter and you can smell dinner in the oven already. So she takes sort of these, these experiences that she never would have had as a child and she romanticizes them. But like, if we look at it from an even deeper perspective, leaving aside for the moment, how she unconsciously romanticizes the lives of these families, let's talk about three things that all of them have in common a living faith, an abundance of good food, and a nurturing woman at the heart of the home. How does Edie's longing to embody these qualities ultimately shape her own choices? Thinking closer to our own experience, what qualities in a Christian home have the potential to draw in troubled souls like Edie and help them find peace and healing? How are Christian evangelism and Christian hospitality intertwined? I think that... There are a variety of reasons that Edie sort of romanticizes these sort of stable homes with an abundance of food, because I, I think that in a very physical way, she grew up hungry. She grew up thirsty. Yeah. She was not filled in that physical way, but even on a more a deeper level, she also wasn't filled emotionally with, with a stable family or spiritually, you know, she talks as an adult, when she reflects on her Christian upbringing, it was not about, you know, the free grace of God that we, that we ascribe to as Lutherans. It's what can I do to earn Christ's favor? I surrender everything to God when in fact, it's Jesus that does the surrendering. And so I think from a spiritual, physical, and emotional perspective, those experiences that she romanticized were done so because they were fulfilling sort of this need that her, her family and her upbringing sort of neglected, that sort of denied her those experiences you know, the the fact that she has this tremendously visceral reaction to receiving the Lord's Supper at a Lutheran church for the first time. You've got food with the bread and the wine. You've got sort of the spiritual fulfillment aspect of it and, and an emotional one as well. I mean, God bless it. She had a, a mental breakdown at that rail. And that was such a powerful moment for me as well. I think that one of the things that we as Lutherans do particularly well is we sort of marry that Christian evangelism and that Christian hospitality together. Like, I know we joke that like Lutherans love 
potlucks. They love to eat. They love to feed each other. That's not a but joke. It's not. That's I like mean, it's not serious. a joke. <laughs> but like, that's one of the things that we poke fun at sometimes as as an aspect of Lutheran culture. But like, if you if you probe that a little bit and do some more digging, like feeding somebody, whether or not they are neglected in their home, like feeding somebody is one of the most loving things that you can do for somebody by giving them, you know, nourishment and warmth and showing them that you care about their physical well-being. Um, and when you just, when you marry that with the word and telling people about Jesus, like, why wouldn't you have a soup supper after an Advent service? Um, <laughs> because those things are, they are so deeply intertwined together. We look at the, we look at the individual who's struggling and we care for those needs. But then we also say, by the way, and maybe even more importantly, let me tell you about a God who showers upon us grace that we don't deserve, but that's how loving he is. And that's why we, that's why we act in the way that we do, because he loves us in a similar way. I think throughout the entire book, especially where these scenarios sort of are described, is it's, it drives home for me God's gift of community, that we are to dwell in relationship with each other and care for each other and witness to each other. This, the scene where she's in Susan's house and Susan's reading out of the book of Isaiah and they're like sobbing together because of the beauty of God's word. Like, oh, like I want, I want to be a Susan to somebody more than anything else in my entire <laughs> life. Like that was just a beautiful, well, let me give you an iced tea and a cookie and let's read the Bible and God loves you. You aren't the only one. It's obvious that Edie, this becomes her goal as well. And this mm -hmm. sort of coincides with what was, for personal reasons, kind of a, I won't say painful, let's say complicated. It's complicated. A complicated part of the book where she goes to all the trouble of college and nursing school and medical school, gets her, you know, her MD begins practicing. And then by the end of the book, she's gone from full-time to part-time to a full-time stay-at-home mom. And I was, you know, there's always a part of you that goes, wasn't that a waste? You know, why, why would you go to that much trouble for that and then give it all up? And of course, this is kind of personal because that's sort of my story as well. But I think what she, re what she really wanted to be all along was a healer. Mm -hmm. And that actually gets in the way of her being a doctor. She gets reprimanded for caring too much about her patients, for mm -hmm. taking a holistic approach to medicine that is not very efficient or sustainable. But I think she realizes that where she has found the greatest healing is at church, yes, but also around the kitchen tables of women who have time on their hands who have an open door and food in the oven and cookies on the counter. And she says, okay, well, I've, this is where I've found a lot of healing in my life. 
I want to make this kind of healing available to other people. And I really, I, I, I couldn't ultimately, you know, complain about that because I think it was a really uh, healthy choice for her to reevaluate how can she best be a healer in the world and to sort of get some clarity there. I think as the, the woman being sort of the nurturing core of a family and sort of taking up that role and quote unquote, you know, forsaking years of education and probably student loan debt and et cetera. Like (laughs) there, honestly, there is no more noble profession. I feel like than somebody who lives for nurturing their family on a full-time basis. Like, I don't, I don't know if that's for me, honestly, I wish it was, but you know, for, for everybody who looks at this and says, wow, like what a waste it's, I don't think that it is. I think that it's, I think honestly, if nothing else, it's trading one form of nurturing for another. And as a, as a mom, you know, it's her kids. Her kids are her quote unquote patients, I guess, if you wanted to stretch out the metaphor. Not just her kids though, her other family members, her neighbors, her fellow church, church people and school people, school people. Doesn't she like adopt one of her husband's patients, kids or something Mm -hmm. like she's as much as community has been a blessing to her on a very personal level, like that's what she's doing now for others. Mm -hmm. And I think that's fantastic. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you have to have that really long journey of going through hard times and schooling and working your tail off for something you think you want to get to a point where you realize that that isn't actually what you want anymore and that's okay. And life goes on and you move along with it and, and uh, God has other things in store. Are you talking to me, Sarah? <laughs> maybe you. I think maybe she's me. talking about herself, maybe. But it's I mean, like I think. It, well, yeah. I I don't know about all four of us, but at least maybe two of us are in a place that I mean, I didn't think I would be anywhere close to in the position that I am right oh, now. Pfft. Ten years ago, me? I mean, I, I had my life planned in a completely different way. But God's plans are way better than mine. Right. So it is, it is. Yeah, it is only by the grace of God in every woman's situation mm-hmm. that she is at the point where she is. Yep. But what I mean, wherever you are in life, and this is I love I love watching you ladies do your thing because in all of your vocations, you take care of your people, and who those people are may look different in each situation. But that's at the heart of it is what we do. We take care of our people. And I love that. Brie brought up Edie's you know, visceral reaction to community. Sorry. That, that is the part that made me cry. <laughs> it, finally, it finally got me. And not really because, well, I shouldn't say that. I've had a reaction similar to that at the altar. Not for the same reasons, I'm sure, because I'm a cradle Lutheran. So, you know, I was confirmed in eighth grade and all of that and been taking communion since I was... 12 or 13 or however old I was in eighth grade but yet that her description of 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 entering Lutheran church and this this was the question uh, question number six reading her description of entering a Lutheran church for the first time gives us a lot of insight into what visitors 
or first people who have never stepped foot into a Lutheran church before, what their reactions are. We like to think we know what, what they're looking at, but it may be completely off base. So the question was for people who came to Lutheranism as an adult or older child, what was it like for you stepping into a Lutheran church for the first time, first time experiencing Lutheran worship? What initial impressions did you take away? What kept you coming back? The alternate question for cradle, cradle Lutherans like me, when you visit a, a new Lutheran church for a first time, what do you notice? What feels the same everywhere? What feels different? And Edie's description also hit me right in the feels. I love visiting other Lutheran churches or just I love visiting churches in general. There's a reverence inside of the space and you can it, it just feels different when you're inside a church. And the first thing I I like all of the senses. Uh, I love the smells and there's there's certain churches in particular uh, that I that I can still smell <laughs> because it's such a strong connection to being in that space. If they use incense, that's probably one of my favorite things to just because it just it kind of envelops you and it sticks on your clothes. And when you go home later, you, you can still smell it and it's it's wonderful. But I'm also a, a creative type and I love visual art. So every church that we ever visit I always look up first because, especially if it's an older building, the ceilings are generally really cool. Um, and I have Orthodox family. So when we go to visit an Orthodox church, I mean, the icons are incredible. They're everywhere and they're beautiful. It's it's like a next level kind of artistic experience. And then always looking at the stained glass windows. And I think that was something that she noticed too, uh, was just the 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 stunning beauty of of stained glass windows especially in the morning uh if it's a really sunny day and the and the, the sun's coming through just right and they they just glow and they tell they generally tell a story of of the bible or of the church or of the church's history or um of a lot of times of jesus life and so it's just this beautiful depiction of artwork that you can just stare at for a long time and probably never even get through all of the symbols and the the cool artwork that's in them. And then I always look at the altar. Most churches have a different altar piece. There's something different up there. There's different uh, things underneath uh, the altar. If it's like carved marble, there's different symbols. A lot of older like country churches will have a very similar Jesus on top of the altar, which is always fun. I've seen several in like farmland that, that they just kind of all look the same. But then the artwork that's behind, that's behind there, there's just so much symbolism that, that's there and so much beautiful artwork that also teaches us about our faith, which I think is awesome. You're immersed in this space that you're not just there listening and singing and responding, that you're surrounded by all of these things that teach us about our faith too. And that is super, super powerful. I think one of my favorite altars is in a church in Pittsburgh and it's a crucifix and then it has, there's a skull underneath the crucifix and like Jesus is like killing death it's awesome oh, i love it <laughs> i love it and i and I, I i've been to that church several times and it was just i think not the last time at the time before i finally actually looked closely enough to actually see that skull underneath i was like that is awesome <laughs> on the flip side of that when someone visits a church we might think oh they need this or they need that but it also might be just a good idea to talk to them uh, and see what they actually do need. Right. Um, maybe they're familiar with liturgy. Maybe they have zero clue what liturgy even means. I mean, that could be a completely foreign word. 
to us who are Lutherans, we can go to a lot of churches even around the world and it's going to be the same for us. And we know that and it's comfortable. But for someone who's a, who doesn't come from that traditional liturgical background, they're going to be clueless and it's going to be weird and scary yeah. and they, they may not, not feel welcome. They might not dislike it. I mean, right. he obviously was drawn to it, yeah. but she needed some help Yeah, to it's, get to learn it. Um, right. That, that they need, you know, obviously the one thing everyone needs when they go to church is Jesus. Right. Um, they need the gospel. <laughs> they need yes. the law. They need the Lord. But beyond that, they need somebody to bridge what's going on at the church and bring them in, draw them mm-hmm. in, and make them feel like they know what's going on. Yes. Um, it's interesting you say that you've, you don't remember having that kind of visceral reaction taking the Lord's Supper. Because I think a lot of our listeners, and at least one person here, have a new appreciation for that after uh, COVID. You, oh, can yeah. read, you can read all about my my moment in on the Lutheran Witness website, witness.lcms.org, where I just basically lost it and ugly cried after my first time taking communion in a parking lot. Yeah. So, but I think this time, as painful as it has been, has allowed us all to sort of reapproach our churches for the first time again mm-hmm. and to really appreciate in a new way the beauty and the power of what happens there. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think I'll take it for granted again for a long time because <laughs> I miss yeah. it so much. I just I want to mention one comment here on your question, Sarah, because I really liked this. I loved Anne Gonzalez, a friend of all of us, who said that when I what I notice when I visit a new church at this stage, I notice how welcome my children seem to be. It's not mm. solely about are there other children, but that sure helps. But will the ushers pass the offering plate at child height if they are at the end of the pew? Are there resources available for kids to use during worship? Do people stare at the slightest noise? This is not an issue anymore, but when we were last visiting, it was. Are there changing tables in the bathroom? And, you know, questions like this, which I think are notable in in the context of this book, because um, even though Edie didn't uh, begin going to a Lutheran church until she was already, you know, married a mother. She had been going to church since the time she was a child and often had gone by herself. And so it behooves us as, as church ladies to think about how can we really, really structure our, just the little things we do to welcome children. In my in my case, when I was a, you know, when we were in a parish, I um, dug a bunch of step stools out of the storeroom and put them underneath all the water fountains because my kids couldn't reach. <laughs> and I thought, well, if my kids can't reach, someone else's kids can't reach either. So it's those little things. And, and that translates, of course, to adults as well. There are things we can do to make, make our churches more welcoming to adults, to people with disabilities, to to people who are older, lots of things, little things that show how much we care and how much we want them there. I strive to be the resident silly face maker for the children. Same. (laughs) Sometimes, most times you can get away with that. You definitely can't get away with it with adults, but Hmm. have you tried it with adults? Because that's hilarious. 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, God, I plead the fifth. It is a lot harder with a mask on, I have to say. Like, right. you got to, like, really know how to work your eyes with the little kids because they don't really know what's happening. <laughs> I feel like you need to learn how to wiggle your ears now in the age of the night. <laughs> I can cross my eyes and both of them. Anyway, that is way off topic. What else do you got for us, Rachel? You know, I think we're rounding the home stretch on this one. I mean, obviously, we could talk about all of this stuff until oh, the cats come home. Um, yep. But we have some other things to talk about, too, like what we're going to read next. Oh, yes. Oh, so if we're ready... Our next book now. Okay, so background for this first. If you uh, were in our Facebook group in June, I think it was in June, you you may remember a very long post from me relating to all the conversations started by the Black Lives Matter protests this year, and how that really spurred our church, the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, to do some what I can only call as soul searching and deep listening and i my post was sharing a really stunning reporter article called i think a time to listen which drew on voices from around the synod to really tell their stories and help us get a better perspective on what it's like to be a lutheran of color in what is very predominantly white denomination and i'm not gonna you know say what exactly is is the cause behind that or if it's something that you know whose responsibility it is to change that if anyone's but i was really inspired by this to do some more listening because listening is great and so as we were coming into this next book club pick i thought well wouldn't it be great if we could do some listening together as a book club and so i reached out to three women who have been really, as far as I can see, instrumental in very lovingly bringing the conversation forward in the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod and ask them to pick a couple of books that we could make as our shortlist for this. So as it happens, not all of these, and I'm going to, we'll go through all the books that they sent me and they're all worth looking into. Not all of them were particularly completely appropriate for uh, the book club context, but they're all worth reading. So are you ready for our, yeah. our we'll call them our honorable mentions. And then we'll get down to the book. I think we've all four of us agreed is going to be our next book club. <laughs> all right. Um, first off, we've got some suggestions from Monique Nunes, who is the wife of John, the Reverend Dr. John Nunes, who is the president of Concordia College, Bronxville. And she sent two recommendations, both of which are children's books. And I've read one of them and it's beautiful. So if you're really looking to expand your library, either or both of these would be great. She recommends first Mole Music by David McPhail, which is a spiritual story about the far reaching effects of private actions. In this book, Mole has always led a simple life, but lately he feels something is missing when he first hears someone playing a violin. Mole realizes he longs to make beautiful music too. Through practice and patience, Mole learns to play, and even though he plays alone in the privacy of his home, his music has an effect on others that is more magical than Mole will ever know. This one I haven't read yet, but I'm 
think I might have to look into that because it sounds really beautiful. The other one was uh, both a Caldecott Honor and a Reading Rainbow book. Um, Reading Rainbow. I know. Uh, it's my and it's called Mufaro's Beautiful Daughters. It's a memorable retelling of uh, Cinderella that both introduces children to that fairy tale, but also to the history, culture, and geography of Zimbabwe. So it, it takes the the fairy folk tale, you know, genre that we know really well, and uses it to really teach about a different culture. I need to read that. I know. It's, I know. It Obviously, fun. it sounds fantastic. I, I could probably come up with a week's worth of questions for a picture book because that's how I roll. But um, <laughs> I mean, I think I'll just leave that one out there and we'll uh, let you guys find that in the library or on Amazon on your own. Next up from Kay Wolf, who is a pastor's wife living in the Detroit area. One of now, my favorite people. I know. We really got to have her on here one of these days. I love her. <laughs> yep. So she recommended, and this is going to be sort of a supply and demand problem. She recommended several books, which are either print on demand or very low inventory right now. So if you are interested in any of these, go grab them quick before your other Lutheran ladies get to them. And by <laughs> Sarah Gulseth, who is going to be <laughs> snatching them up. And these are all from Concordia Publishing House, our own synodical publishing house. One is Black Christians by Jeff G. Johnson, which was a, an entry in the Concordia Scholarship Today series. So for those of you who really like to dig deep in the in the sort of scholarly side of, of um, church history and ecclesiology, this would be a great one to add to your library. And then she also recommended the book Roses and Thorns by the Reverend Dr. Richard C. Dickinson, in which a Black pastor details the history of Black Lutheran experience in the United States. So again, there aren't a whole lot of copies in stock, but they are available print on demand. Well worth looking. I'm going to be reading Roses and Thorns within the next couple of months. I think we have a copy somewhere in a box somewhere. <laughs> we just moved. Then the last set of recommendations came from Olajimoke Oderla, who is one of our, and I hope I said your name right, <laughs> but one of our active participants in conversations in the Lutheran Ladies Lounge discussion group. And she recommended a couple of titles. One of them is out very recently. It's called Such a Fun Age by Kylie Reed. And she says, I don't think this would make a good one for the book club because there's some inappropriate content. But she said that a lot of what she's read in this book really strikes home for her, looking at her experience and how oftentimes there's this sort of cultural disconnect around the subject of racism, where people just simply don't realize the effect that their actions have and that their perspectives may be sort of not as complete as they should be. So this is from the Amazon description. It's a striking and surprising debut novel about race and privilege set around a young black babysitter, her well-intentioned employer, and a surprising connection that threatens to undo them both. So again, we won't be reading this one together, but 
If you that one are... was already on my to to read list. Hey! Yeah. Oh, excellent. Put it on there. There you go. <laughs> so if you can handle a, a little bit of of uh, you know adult content, this one should would, would probably do a, help broaden perspectives. Another one that Ola recommended was Rhythms by Donna Hill, which is the story of it started that spans from 1927 decades into the future the story of Cora Harvey who wants to become a singer goes to fulfill her dreams and then comes back to her hometown in Mississippi with a dark secret that eventually creates some chaos in her life and in the world around her and the, the world that comes after her i have not read this one but it looks really interesting and if you enjoy sort of like, I don't know, thrilling page turners, uh, emotional dramas, that sort of thing, this would probably be a good book for you. And I, I just, I love being exposed to these uh, new ideas for reading lists. So before we get to our our final final pick, I'll just say, if ever you have a recommendation that you want to talk about, send me a private message on Facebook. Or just start a thread in the lounge. Every time we've done this, it's turned into a wonderful conversation. Hey, what's everyone reading? I just read this. What have you got? I need some new ideas. And suddenly I'm just surrounded with more books than I have room for on my nightstand. (laughs) (laughs) Overwhelmed. Let's keep that going because I think the more we can read, and especially read together, the more we grow on the inside and learn to see the world in a more fully colored, rich, uh, vibrant way. Okay, so there was one book that both Kay Wolf and Olajimoke recommended together. Uh, They didn't know they were each recommending it. And it's one that has actually showed up on our podcast before, but not in the book club. And I think this has got to sort of be our unanimous Unanimous. Give us the drum roll, Brie. You always give a drum roll. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so our next book club pick, uh, since none of you guys objected, and I don't think any of our book club friends feel like as synod employees, we have we like it's required reading. (laughs) All right, we we will be reading "Light in the Dark Belt" by Rosa Young. It's another, this one, okay, this one is an autobiography, which as Elizabeth Allman helpfully pointed out in our Facebook discussion thread on all the pretty things, memoirs and autobiographies aren't exactly the same thing. So we're doing something slightly different. And it it is, I have read it and it is definitely not the same kind of read as all the pretty things. So it is, it will definitely be a different experience. of. Unfortunately, this one, I don't think is available in audiobook yet, but it is available in both print and ebook. So you should be able to get it. It's a really fast read. I am I am a hardcore audiobook person and I think I finished this one in like maybe 2 days. It's yes. it's it's a really fast read. Required a uh, pre-reading activity for this is to go back and listen to Sarah's story time episode on Rosa Young. She was an educator in Alabama in the early to mid 20th century who was instrumental in the founding of what the school that later became Concordia College 
Alabama, and just an amazing woman of faith and advocate for education. And so we're going to read her story in her own words and see what we can learn from this act of faithful listening together. And I'm, I'm really, really looking forward to this one. So I, I look forward to all of them. I'm, you know, <laughs> <laughs> this is one of your favorite things. Don't I? <laughs> it really is. It really is. Reading books together in community is something that never gets old or boring. It always reveals new depths of insight into books that otherwise I think I've got figured out, but turns out, oh no, there was more to see there. Mm-hmm. Um, this latest book club discussion, we had such wonderful interactions. Uh, I think 71 women RSVP'd and not everyone commented on every thread, but I came away with such a deeper uh, appreciation for the book than I came into. And I can't wait to do it with the next book and the book after that and the book after that. So let's keep it going. Yay. So our next book is Light in the Dark Belt. The story of Rosie Young as told by herself, which means it's by Rosie Young. Uh, we'll post links for where to find it and also where to get more background information about her life and about her uh, surroundings and the things happening around her in the South. There's a whole bunch of other background resources if you love digging into things online like I did I when I researched her story. We can also share a link. There is an order form available for all the resources that can be provided through the LCMS Black Ministry Mm -hmm. office. A lot of the recommendations we've talked about show up on that list. So Sarah, maybe we can put a link to that document somewhere on a page too. Yeah, we can put links everywhere. Yay! (laughs) Links everywhere! (laughs) And just a reminder for people about how this book club works. Uh, This does happen in our Facebook group. If you go to Facebook dot com slash uh oh actually i shouldn't say the link it's like a weird <laughs> link find us on facebook just find the lutheran ladies lounge Drug group on facebook it will be an event that will show up in a little while uh rachel will put the event up all you have to do is rsvp going to the event and then all of the discussion will happen in that event page so you don't have and- to look anywhere else in the group or any any other forum it will be specifically in that event that will be And to clear up some confusion that happened this last time, there isn't actually a show up at this time for a Facebook live discussion. We're all busy, ladies. So what happens, the way this works is that you get one to two discussion questions per day during book club, and then you get to answer them in your own time, in your own way, respond to anything that, that interests you. Um, So it's really a low commitment, but high reward way to do it that no one has to actually move anything in their schedule around to make time exactly and you can even like post your own comments and questions in the event too because oh for sure why not it's a book club (laughs) Uh, you know i'm ready to start reading let's start reading people I know all of you have like super long reading lists and Corona Tide hasn't exactly helped us you know, read anymore. That's an Andy Bates thing. I can't take I can't take credit for that. He coined it. Uh, so go read your books, people. Find all of the rest of our podcasts at kfuo.org slash Lutheran Ladies Lounge. Of course, find us in, on Facebook in the Lutheran Ladies Lounge group, uh, especially for our book club discussion. You're listening to the Lutheran Ladies Lounge podcast. I'm Sarah. I'm Erin. I'm Bree! <laughs> and I'm really excited to get reading. Yeah! yeah.
Views and opinions expressed on the Lutheran Ladies' Lounge podcast may not represent the official position of the management or ownership of KFUO Radio, the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. The Lutheran Ladies' Lounge is produced by KFUO Radio and available at kfuo.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Join our community on Facebook in the Lutheran Ladies' Lounge.